what kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter focused on Aladdin Sane, the American sibling of Ziggy Stardust. He was born during David Bowie's first tour of the United States in the fall of 1972. His bisected face, split in two by a lightning bolt, goes a long way in illustrating David's conflicted views about these undoubtedly exciting times. On one hand, he was seeing America at close range, living out his Jack Kerouac dreams on the road. The crowds were growing. The press followed his every move. Everything he'd been working towards seemed to be coming true. But on the flip side, he was physically and mentally exhausted. The constant travel, grueling performances, financial chaos, and psychic confusion caused by his many characters had stretched David to his breaking point. He discovered, as many newly successful artists do, that commercial success demands creative repetition. And repetition was one of David's least favorite words. Rather than succumb to this slow artistic death, David would have to kill off his most beloved creation. Witness to the high highs and low lows was Tony Zanetta, a legendary figure in the experimental downtown drama scene of late 60s New York. He'd first entered David's orbit as a cast member of Andy Warhol's play Pork in 1971, co-starring with last week's guest, Cherry Vanilla. Before long, both would be swept up in the whirlwind of David's management company, Main Man. In case you're not already familiar, this was not your average suit and tie kind of company. Headed up by Bowie's larger-than-life manager, Tony DeFreeze, the organization traded in excess in style. In practice, it was more like an elaborate performance piece than a strict bottom-line business. This goes a long way in explaining why DeFreeze hired Zanetta to be main man's president, despite the fact that he had no business experience whatsoever. Zanetta would later be drafted into a much more demanding role as David's tour manager, overseeing the treks for Ziggy Stardust and, later on, the notoriously over-the-top Diamond Dogs production. Keeping the show on the road and egos in check, all with a daily operating budget of close to zero dollars, it's not a job for the faint of heart. 
Zanetta was gracious enough to speak to me about those thrilling days on tour with David, as his star soared to new heights, and how, just as fast, everything changed. Before we get to Bowie, I want to take it back a little further. How did you first get involved with Andy Warhol and the Theater of the Ridiculous and the downtown arts community? Well... You know, I, I mean, I always loved acting and I loved theater. I did high school plays and I did plays in college. But when I got to New York, of course, it was a little different. And I didn't get involved right away. But I'd been here a couple of years and I started doing some acting, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward, I had met Tony and Gracia when I first got to New York because Tony and Gracia was from Massapequa, Long Island. And my college roommate, Tom Carberry, was from Massapequa, Long Island. So Tom had grown up with Tony and with Jimmy Slattery, a.k.a. Candy Darling. <laughs> so I met Candy and Tony early on. And then Tony was working with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, John Baccaro's company. And then Tony was a playwright. And Tony began directing. And one of the early things he directed was a play by Jackie Curtis called Femme Fatale. And in the meantime, his own plays were being done. He had a play called Sheila. He had a play called Island. But, and then he directed a play called World Birth of a Nation by Wayne County. Tony always had aspirations to be kind of a very legitimate writer-director. So he always advertised in the trade papers, which most people downtown did not do. But he did. And I saw the ad for uh, the casting for World Birth of a Nation. And by that time, I had decided that I really wanted to work with The Ridiculous because I had, I had just seen a play that John Baccaro did or the Playhouse of the Ridiculous did called Nightclub, which was absolutely mesmerizing. It was just incredible. So I went to the audition for World and Tony remembered me. And he said, darling, you don't have to audition. Of course you could be in my play. Anyway, <laughs> that was in... Uh, like September of 1970. And from then on, my world kind of changed because I entered the world of the ridiculous. And the one day I met Tony, I knew Tony, I met Lee Black Childers, I met Wayne Jane County, I met Terry Vanilla, who was still Kathy Doherty. I met Jamie DiCarlo Lotz Andrews, who would later come work with us at Main Man. So I met, I met basically the people that I would become closest to for the next years. I mean, Cherry Vanilla and I are still closest, closest friends. And that's been quite a, that's what's that, 50 years, something like that. And then that leads into, into pork, which, I mean, what was it like when pork hit New York? I mean, that I, I can't imagine there's anything like that before on, on the stage. Well, that's an interesting question for a lot of reasons. First of all, Warhol, you know, if you were in downtown well, if you were in the ridiculous, let me put it that way, in downtown theater. And if you went to Max's Kansas City, and if you know, or if you were somehow in the art world, on the fringe of the art world, I mean, Warhol was king, and the factory was was what it was all about. You kind of want, I mean, most of us wanted to become a part of the factory, or we wanted to be superstars, or whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, we hung out with Jackie Curtis and Candy and Hollywood. I loved Eric Emerson. Who else? Oh, Geraldine Smith and Andrea Warhola Whips. These are all people that went to the Max's Kansas City. But so to be associated with Warhol was like very exciting. <laughs> but that's one part of it. The other part of it was 
the play itself, because it, you know, it, this is tape recorded conversations that Andy turned over to Tony and Gracia. And then Tony and Gracia, I mean the transcripts, but there were hours and hours and hours and hours of transcripts. So Tony and Gracia went through the transcripts and put them together to create this quote unquote play, which brings, you know, it, it really questions the idea of what is a play, which Warhol had already done with his book A, which was taped conversations with the superstar and also playoffs of the ridiculous star on Dean. So that, I mean, that was a novel called A. So was it a novel? You know, but but it was also the same thing as his paintings. Painted he painted a soup can and put it on the gallery wall and said it was art. So I mean, it, it, what I'm trying to say is it just confirmed Warhol's um, role as a conceptual artist. So paintings and silk screens, books, and now a play. Now he was moving into the uh, film, and then the idea of theater. So one of the most interesting things about Pork was, was it brings it to question the whole idea of what makes theater or what makes a play. And, uh, and it was definitely perceived as a play. I mean, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, thanks to Ingrassi's editing and how he put the thing together. So it was exciting on a lot of levels, socially to be part of the factory and just artistically to be a part of this process and this whole idea of performance also i want to ask you about the culture element of of the play as well i mean there were a lot of things going on on the stage that people didn't see very much and especially when you took the show to england i can only imagine how that was received over there because i think only a few years earlier they removed the, the basically the censorship position in the government where all the plays had to be approved by i forget the the person's title but I, I can only imagine how how that went down in England. That must have uh, been shocking in the best way, and just completely blew some minds. Well, while we were there, there was, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm not, um, my memory fails me a little. But there was something called the Trial of Oz. Uh, it, it was oh, that it magazine, was all about censorship. right? It was all about censorship in the arts, and um, that was going on while we were in England that summer, summer of 1971. Plus. The um, the play, the movies, and I think it was Flesh and Trash, could not be shown in a cinema. They had to be shown in a cinema club because of <laughs> censorship. Right, exactly. Funny. So, yeah, there was a censorship issue. Now, I don't remember if they came to review it, how, how we got past the censors, if it was different for live performance at that point. This, but the thing about Pork that was also interesting was that it was... It was a lot about sex, a lot of talk about sex. There was a lot of nudity. Jerry Miller douched on stage. Um, however, there was also almost a Charlie Brown kind of innocence quality about pork. It was it was very childlike and very kind of innocent. So in its in its display of like public of sexuality, it wasn't really well. It wasn't. Prurient, or you know, it wasn't like pandering to. It wasn't pornographic in any way. It was, it was very childlike, and I think, and it was comedy. Basically, it was funny. So people were not offended by the open sexuality because of the way it was presented. How did David first become aware of it? I've heard multiple different stories about uh, uh, 
Dana Gillespie possibly auditioning and taking a script to him? How did you first enter his orbit, I guess? Well, Dana denies that now. For some reason, I always thought that that was how it happened. She says, no, she never auditioned. That's total bunk. (laughs) Well, I don't know where I got that story from. He became aware of it. Um, He may have been aware of it anyway. But when we were doing pork in New York in this past spring, um, there, there was a little article in Rolling Stone magazine about him. He had come to to the United States in 1970. That movie that's out now called Stardust, by the way, is um, uh, about him coming to the United States in 1970 and doing this promotional tour for Mercury Records. He didn't have the right visa to perform. So he, he went around and talked to radio stations and met people and blah, 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 blah. So part of it was he, there was a little this little interview with him or I don't know if it was actually an interview. I guess it was an interview in Rolling Stone. And there was a photo of him in in his famous man dress. So that titillated us, me and Lee and Wayne County, especially. We were fascinated by it because he was very pretty wearing this dress. And uh, but we didn't know his music. We didn't know much else about him. Now, when we were in London doing pork, Sherry was sort of a groupie or she fancied herself a groupie. And she decided she would do uh, a, a column for, our, I think it was Cream Magazine, called Cherry Vanilla Scoops for You. Basically, it was an excuse for her to contact fans that she wanted to see in concert and get in for free. <laughs> <laughs> so she and Lee would go to all these concerts. Lee was t- uh, taking photos and Cherry meeting the band and ostensibly writing about them. What a, and they saw an ad for the man in the dress, David Bowie. He was playing a place called the Country Club, which was a small venue. I always thought it was acoustic. It wasn't acoustic, but it wasn't like a big rock and roll show. It's was, it was kind of a tame rock. Anyway, it was a kind of a tame concert. They went. She, Cherry, Lee, and Wayne went to see David Bowie. Um, and either he knew they were coming or somehow they connected before because he, he he actually announced them from the stage and they stood up and took Cherry stood up and took a bow and uh, thrust her tit out, which was a signature <laughs> move for Pork because that's what Bridget Polk. Pork is based on Bridget Polk's ta- uh, tape recordings. She was a Warhol superstar who always went around with one breast. Not always. She frequently would expose one breast. That was like a cute little thing that Bridget did. <laughs> And, you know, she had books of tit prints and books of cock prints. That was her art. Anyway, so Cherry exposed the tit, and they all uh, um, made contact. And Angie was there. I don't know. I don't think Dana was. But anyway, they invited David and Angie to come to see Pork. And uh, that's that's how the first connection was made. And then David and Angie and Dana Gillespie. And Tony DeFries, the ma- their manager, I think Mick Ronson, yeah, Mick Ronson was with them too, came to see Pork. And they came backstage and blah, blah, blah. We ended up going to the Sombrero, which was the dance club on Kensington High Street. And that was our first encounter, or my first encounter. And you said you were really more taken with Angie at this stage rather than David, because he, he was a bit more more shy and reticent. Well, I don't know if he was actually shy, but he was quiet and he didn't really um, 
It wasn't that forthcoming. She was very effusive and very outgoing. And yes, she was definitely kind of uh, uh, the diplomat of the two. <laughs> she she was the one that was really reaching out. Yeah, he kind of stood back, kind of taking it in. And then even at the sombrero, he didn't really participate. He was sitting in the corner speaking to, uh, as I recall, a Japanese boy, uh, co- closely huddled. I don't know what that was all about. But anyway. But Angie was raucous and dancing with me and Cherry and carrying on. So we had a good old time with Angie. Mick Ronson cowered in the corner because he was scared to death of Cherry. (laughs) (laughs) Cherry could be a little aggressive. That was a little much for Mick. Um, And then at the end of the night, Angie invited me to come to their house the next day in Beckenham, which I did. Oh, out at Haddon Hall. What was that scene like? I picture it like a a gothic commune or something. (laughs) Well, it was it was kind of a gothic house. I mean, it was very imposing from the exterior. It was like it was an old mansion, and yeah, it was quite impressive. But they they lived in the entry hall, basically. You know, the, this was an old mansion that was divided into apartments, into flats. So they certainly didn't live in much of the house. That you walked in and you were in this big entry hall. And there was a staircase that went up and there was a balcony. But the balcony, all the rooms were closed off up there. All there was was this balcony. And although I didn't see it, that, that's evidently where like Rhino and the band slept if they stayed there. And it was kind of a sleeping balcony, I guess. And then downstairs, there was a bedroom, a music room, and I guess a kitchen. I don't know if I even saw the kitchen. So it wasn't big. It was like three or four room apartment. Um yeah, but very impressive from the outside. What was the dynamic like between David and Angie at that time? Well, <laughs> they were um, they were pretty. You know, they were like a really tight couple at that time. The baby was young. They they were the kind of couple where you know one could start speaking and the other could end the sentence, sort of thing. <laughs> Angie was always more outgoing. But uh, and she was very, very. Um, but she could, she could definitely. When he wanted to take over, she would definitely step back and put the spotlight on him. He was the kind of. He, he always. My whole association with him was he's the kind of person who, if he didn't want to be noticed, he wasn't. Hmm. You didn't. You didn't even see him. He. He could be very. It was almost like crawling into himself. You just didn't see him. But if he wanted to take center stage it was almost like there was a spotlight that suddenly went on a follow spot that went on him so you didn't see anything but him and, and it was almost like turning it on and off he really had that ability there's that great Marilyn Monroe story where she's walking down the street with I think her photographer or a friend and no one notices her it's just this crowded New York City street and and she's just walking around and her, her friend says something like I can't believe you're able to just do this and Marilyn says do you want to see her you want to see Marilyn? And then just with these little imperceptible shifts, all of a sudden she just radiates and people, cars slow down and people start turning and looking at her. And it reminds me of what you're saying about David. It's exactly the same thing. Exactly. And he was, he's, he was extremely charming. He was very seductive, intelligent. You know, when he wanted to turn it on, it was like, whoa, it was pretty radiant. (laughs) You couldn't look away. Let me put it that way. But the the two of them were very close. She was extremely, extremely. I mean, she did, definitely took a backseat. Everything was about him. Nama nama. She called him nama 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 nama. Uh, <laughs> she um, he could do no wrong. 
you know, everything was David, 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 David. And he kind of soaked it up. He, he did like that kind of uh, adoration and support. You know, he did. He, and Lindsay Kemp's once said this. For, he was the kind of person you opened the door for. And he, <laughs> he was the kind of person you opened the door for. <laughs> and she was pushing doors down for him. Kicking and, them down. <laughs> yeah, she, she was very aggressive where he wasn't. And she was like noisy and lively where he wasn't. So I think he he needed that at the, at that time, and they were they were really a good couple, they, and they seemed to be you know very fond of each other, and uh, it was good. It was good until it wasn't good, I, I guess. It mm-hmm. was good for a long time though. It was good until he, I think he didn't need her so much anymore because that's again I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but he he was he's David was pretty self centered. In that, I mean, I don't mean that in a, as a criticism necessarily, but everything about him was really about, and it all came out in his art. He, he, everything about him was about his art. So, so the people around him, he was only interested in people that somehow he could absorb, and they would spit back out in whatever art he was doing. If he didn't find you interesting, believe me, he was not going to turn that light on or give you the time of day. <laughs> and when he was done, he was done. You know, he he didn't necessarily stay interested in the, in the same things or the same people all the time. Although, to his credit, I mean, George Underwood was a lifetime friend. Jeffrey McCormick was a lifetime friend. Uh, he and Iggy James Osterberg were friends for quite a long time. I mean, and I think I think David could also be very generous in his friendships. He certainly helped Iggy a lot. Um, okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I sort of piggybacking off what you just said. I mean, very soon after uh, seeing Pork, Bowie starts putting together his own piece of performance art, the sort of Brechtian theater piece, Ziggy Stardust. What kind of influence do you think Pork had on on that, the construction? Well, of he that? didn't start doing that because of Pork, that's for sure. I mean, you know, I, I, everybody's always gotten carried away through the years of him taking things from Pork. I'm sure he did, but it wasn't really that. It, it's not like he was not alive until pork. Right. Uh, uh, he he told me about what he was doing. You know, when I, that that Sunday afternoon, we talked a lot about theater. I didn't know much about Brechtian theater. He was explaining Brechtian theater to me, and he was talking. And at that time, it was Ziggy wasn't totally evolved, although I think the music was pretty much evolved, because he was he was very infatuated with Freddie Barrett. Who was um, who made ended up making a lot of his early costumes? But Freddie was a boy from the sombrero, and Freddie was um, great looking, and Freddie could like really make an entrance. You know, you cut, you know, Freddie was one of those boys that was very pretty. You noticed Freddie. <laughs> he also was like very sharp witted and kind of fun to be around. But I think David was kind of basing Ziggy in some ways around Freddie. He. Um, he wanted to record Freddie. Of course, Freddie couldn't sing, but he had the idea of having a band where Freddie would be the lead singer. And again, I'm, the fans are going to kill me because they know this better than I do. Because he had a band called Hype, and I can't remember if that was where Freddie was supposed to be lead singing or something else. But it didn't really work out, but it was kind of a dress rehearsal for Ziggy. Oh, the Arnold Corns project. Yes. Arnold Corns. I'm yes. sorry. Arnold Corns. Arnold Corns. Yes, that's it. See, you know more than I do. Um, the Arnold Corns project kind of morphed into Ziggy, in my opinion, but it was his kind of a dress rehearsal 
you know, for creating this character at least. So he was in the process of really creating this. Yes, it, it kind of was. Ziggy was, I mean, not that it was going to go to the West End next the next week, but it was kind of a musical in a way. Mm. And it was about this alien rock star that he then decided to play. But and when and, and when we, and Brechtian, yes, it was Brechtian in that it wasn't him. It was him, David Bowie, standing there and saying, this is Ziggy Stardust. This is my creation. This is, a, this is an alien rock star. It's not me, but I'm playing it on stage. And, and I don't think, and I think it was pretty remarkable because no, well, as far as I know, no, no, that hadn't happened in rock and roll. So he was accused of being inauthentic because he was, it was misunderstood what he was doing. No, he wasn't Ziggy Stardust. He was showing us Ziggy Stardust. Um, in terms of pork, what was I, I? I do have a couple of theories myself, and they're just my opinions. Doesn't mean anything other than it's my opinion. One of the things about pork, again, I was telling you how kind of it was kind of childlike, even though it was very kind of outrageous in some of the dialogue and some of the ideas it was presenting. So it, it had a flam, it had a sexual flamboyance about it, and in it. And it um, it wasn't that it was so gender neutral because I, I don't really think it was, but it was very um, kind of outrageous. And 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 those of us who were involved in that company were all kind of um, sexually outrageous, kind of sexual outlaws. I like I like to call them sexual outlaws. So I think I think that now I'm not saying he wasn't outrageous. He was probably more of a sexual outlaw than any of us. But the idea of presenting it so blatantly might have um, influenced him. Plus. You know, he was very influenced by, again, going back to Warhol, the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed. And Lou Reed certainly had the sexual ambiguity about him. Was he gay? Was he straight? Was he androgynous? He's gay. He's married. I mean, nobody quite knew what that was all about. And then the other edge of the, the drugs. But let's not even go into the drugs. Just the sexuality was very... Um, mysterious shall we say and i think he incorporated a lot of that into the ziggy persona um um makeup wise i mean i think i think the look of ziggy certainly was wasn't so much about from pork it was really there was almost pure lindsey kemp mm. but see a lot there's also a lot of other coincidences going on or a lot of synchronicity Lindsay Kemp's company and the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, although they weren't similar at all, were very similar, particularly visually and particularly because of some of their influences. Japanese theater, for instance. You know, John Baccaro from the Playhouse had spent time in Japan, was very interested or very. Uh, um, um, uh, my, my mind's going blank. Very. Um, well, Kabuki theater had a big big influence yeah very influenced by kabuki theater and the look of kabuki theater the makeup um but the whole style of kabuki he really incorporated into the playhouse but lindsey kemp was doing kind of the same thing plus lindsey and john had other similarities in that they were both interested in kind of creating something that was new it wasn't like what lindsey was doing wasn't just um, mine, but you couldn't call it really drag. You know, it was drag, it was mime, it was circus, it was Japanese, it was all sorts of things all mushed in together to create something new. And that certainly um, 
was the, one of the biggest influence, influences on David in taking a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from over there, and in all taking it all in and creating something new. And I think he always did that. So he wasn't averse to borrowing ideas or things from other people, that's for sure. But like a true artist, he borrowed and then and then it came out in a different way, his way. Um, so sometimes people say, well, that was the Playhouse or that was this or that. Not really. There were a lot of things happening all over the globe that at the same time. So I think I think if anything, he certainly owed a debt of gratitude to Lindsay Kemp. Um you know, a lot of the Ziggy look was from Clockwork Orange. It started out as almost pure Clockwork Orange, but he didn't get it quite right. <laughs> so it became, again, it became more his own. It wasn't really Clockwork Orange at the end of the day. It was David Bowie or it was Ziggy Stardust. But if you if you marry Lindsay Kemp's mind in the Clockwork or in a Clockwork Orange, you'll get Ziggy Stardust. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I wanted to ask you about sort of the, the very famous uh, second trip to the United States in, in, I think, September of 71, when David's signing with uh, to RCA with Tony DeFries. I wanted to ask you about Tony DeFries because I feel like he's a really misunderstood character in the whole Bowie story. What, what did Tony do for David? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. I mean, again, there wouldn't have been a David Bowie without Tony DeFries. Or there might have been, but nobody would have known about it. Um, Tony DeFries, um, well, he's a pretty interesting character in many, many ways. But I think that the uh, <clears throat> the really key thing was, you know, David was very ambitious and very focused. So was Tony. Tony was looking for, um, you know, I think he wanted to be Alan Klein, but he, he needed... He needed the Beatles or he needed whatever. At first he was going after Stevie Wonder and that did not work. Anyway, Tony needed a vehicle. And along came David Bowie. No one was interested in David Bowie at that time. David Bowie was old news. He had been around for a long time. Uh, so he wasn't, you know, he had been around since he was 15. He's it's almost 10 years at this point. Not quite, but... There wasn't anything, I mean, there was nothing wrong with him, but he wasn't particularly extraordinary. If you look at all those other English bands, they were making it at age 18, 19, 20, 21. Uh, he was almost getting old because he wasn't really a different generation from the Beatles and the Stones. What was he, two years younger? Um, anyway, so Tony had grand ambition. <laughs> Um, you might call him a megalomaniac, <laughs> uh, but he was a fascinating man. He was very intelligent. Uh, he could expound on anything for hours, but he was also pretty fearless. He was not afraid of taking chances, and he was smart. So, um, yeah, he, 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 you know, this this all took a lot of money. That Tony wasn't afraid of going out after. And he, when he signed David, he, he, uh, the deal is misunderstood, number one. And the deal, the deal actually was not that different from a lot of other um, English acts at the time. Their deal was a 50 50 split after expenses. Tony, uh, uh, now, now you have to understand, David Bowie had no income when Tony signed him. And Tony said to him, I will support you. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll pay your rent. I'll buy your uh, new guitar. I'll buy the fabrics from Liberty of whatever, whatever you need. Don't worry. You're taken care of. And um, uh, we will, if we make any money, we will split it 50 50. If we don't, well, then it's my loss. That's pretty seductive if you're an artist sitting there with no nothing in your pocket. Now, of course, there was another side to that eventually, but we'll get there. <laughs> so Tony took over everything. The first thing he did was he he he, he um, got him a publishing deal. He changed the publishing to get a little bit of money, and then he started started shopping for a record deal. He he, he wanted to go with RCA Global, not RCA UK. He did not sign David to RCA UK. He signed David. That's why they came to New York to sign. It was RCA Worldwide because he felt that would give him a lot more clout, which it did. Uh, 
Um, so David wasn't really an English act anymore. He was an English act signed to a global company. Um, so it's, Tony was not afraid to take huge chances when um, when they came to the you know he had he had certain like principles that he stood by. David was not going to be a support act in the United States, and he never was. He was only going to travel first class, which he did. Tony's philosophy was to be a star, you had to act like a star. So David stayed at the Plaza Hotel, went everywhere in limos. Uh, everybody's looking, I mean, everybody in New York's like, looking like, what is going on here? This guy hasn't sold one record. Um, but, you know, um, people began to perceive of him, uh, uh, not as that loser who had been around for 10 years, but as, oh, let's watch what's, it, what's going on with him. Um, now, they were perfectly matched because David had been working for 10 years. David was very smart. He had been studying. He, um, he was focused. He was ready. He was ready to take the next step. He was ready to go out in the world and show them Ziggy Stardust. And DeFries was willing to take the chance to get the right record company, to get the, the bookings, to do this, to do that. And they did it. So their ambitions for that moment at least met. <laughs> Again, I keep using the word synchronicity, but it was synchronistic. They were perfect for each other. At that moment, and that moment is 70, 71, 72, 73, and then it started to fade. When the success began to come in, it began to fade because they didn't need each other quite as much. And then the money began to be questioned. Well, why are you, well, we're splitting 50-50, but you bought that and, that, and, and you bought, you know, all that kind of thing. And, uh, and then there were some, uh, some, a few things definitely um, upset the apple cart, shall we say. But you mentioned the synchronicity. I mean, it's just incredible to think. I mean, even on that one trip in, in September when he goes to, to New York, I mean, it's all the people that he meets. I mean, he meets Lou Reed. He meets Iggy. He meets Andy Warhol. I mean, it's all coming together in this convergence of influences. I mean, what what an incredible trip that must have been. Yeah. I mean, it didn't seem it at the time, but now looking back, yeah, it was. <laughs> See, he also, uh, I get credit for some of the stuff that I certainly didn't do. I did not introduce David Bowie to Lou Reed. Lisa Robinson and Richard Robinson did. Lisa Robinson, Richard Robinson was part of the ANR team at RCA Records. Lisa was his wife. Lisa was a writer. She wrote for the New York Post. And the two of them had two magazines. They had Hit Parader and Rock Scene, which were very well read amongst American teenagers. Not that much in New York or maybe London, but in the American heartland, every kid, every kid in mid-America read Rock Scene magazine. So Lisa and Lisa was very she was very much the queen of the rock and roll journalists. I think, and I don't remember. I know, I know that David and Angie went to a, or David, maybe Angie wasn't even there, went to a party at her, their apartment at around during that week. I don't remember if he, if he actually met Lou there or he met, he certainly met Lou the night of the signing when we all went to the Ginger Man uh, after the signing. And of course, Lisa and Richard were very much a part of that. And it was with Lisa and Richard that we then went to Max's Kansas City where Danny Fields was, who had been Iggy's manager, and Iggy happened to be at Danny's apartment, and Danny called him to come meet David. So, um, um, so yeah, he did a lot in that week. <laughs> and, and the factory visit too. I mean, it's just it's mind boggling to think of of all the people he met. I mean, now you've said that that Bowie and Warhol 
and it makes sense too. I, I can't imagine. I mean, they're both sort of reserved, I guess, on, at first blush. So it, it sounds like it wasn't the most successful meeting in the world between the two. Well, it wasn't terrible. I mean, you know, these things that are kind of ordinary take on legendary mm. reputations. It was just that um, David was not a star. You know, he was just he was he wasn't a star. He had had some records out. Yeah. But he wasn't like they were going to lay down the red carpet because the superstar was walking in. He wasn't a superstar. And no, Andy, to be to really click with Andy, you had to be kind of a certain kind of personality and, you know, tell funny stories and entertain. And David wasn't that kind of personality at all. He was kind of a serious artiste, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> and. I didn't know Andy that well. I had been in pork, but I didn't have that kind of rapport with Andy where I'm going to be calling him on the phone or anything. Um, and so, yeah, we were, you know, it was, and it was really, see, DeFries engineered the whole thing because he wanted to talk to Paul Morrissey about film distribution in <laughs> Europe. <laughs> I didn't he know thought that. He would be a better <laughs> distributor for their, I don't know, you know, it was one of those things. So they're off in the corner talking about film distribution. Andy kept flitting in and out. And yeah, there was this video crew there, which it's funny because I hardly was aware of it at the time. It's years later when you see this video and you think, oh my God, that is not the way I remember this meeting. But I guess it's the way it happened because here's the video. <laughs> I mean, David did do that weird mime thing, which... To me, David was always a little, or at least in those days, was a little bit on the edge. You know, could have gone either way because sometimes he could go into super corny territory <laughs> <laughs> when he let the mime take over too much. And that was one of those moments. It's like, oh my God, what is this guy doing? But it was okay. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't like humiliatingly embarrassing. It was just like, is he going to hurry up and finish this? Kind of embarrassing. What was and, he but doing? He, what was it? Was it just like was it like a disemboweling thing or something? I'm yeah, trying to remember. yeah, yeah. I don't know. One of his mime routines. But to do that in the middle of the factory was like, oh my god! I'm sure nobody else had done mime in the factory. <laughs> 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 but see, that's the only thing about David that it was so key that David was not bothered by taking chances and failing, and he had been failing for years. So what does another <laughs> failure mean? You know, by the time he hit. Again, he'd been around a long time. Nothing stopped him. Where most of the people I know, you know, maybe they'd have one out, whatever. You do something like creative, you kind of shoot your creative wide. And if it's not well received, you kind of like, you know, hulk off into the sunset or something. Not him. Nothing really bothered him, which I think is a great, you know, it's a, it's a sign of a success, first of all. He wasn't bothered by failure or success, he was involved in the process always. And he was a constant seeker that I think we see if you look at his entire career, especially if you look at the end of his career and the way he, yeah. you know, dying, but creating up until the last second, using his illness and whatever he was going through as creative fodder. That's a, that's a true artist. We don't see that that much. <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. 
on demand, temp to hire, part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Is there is there a period for you of, of, of his work that, that really resonates the most with you? Or I, I would assume the Ziggy Latin Sane era just because that was such a, a, a part of your life. But uh, is there anything in particular that, that you really, that's a, a favorite of yours? Well, of course, all of that. But I happen to love Young Americans. You know, mm-hmm. and I was, on that, I was on that tour also. You know, that was kind of the best of times, the worst of times, because in some ways things were beginning to fall apart. But the music was so extraordinary. The musicians were all first, first rate. They were all great kids. They were so much fun to be around. I mean, Carlos Omar and Robin Clark are two of the nicest people you could ever, ever, ever meet. And they were so much fun. Luther Vandross, this fat 19-year-old boy that was so Mm. fucking talented. (laughs) You know, Ava, sweet Ava, I love Ava. Um, Dave Sanborn, probably one of the, in my estimation, one of the best sax, saxophone players in the world. Um, it was extraordinary. And I think that music is just really fantastic. But of course, I love Ziggy. That, you know, that was, that was, um, 
That was also great. And then uh, um, the last album, um, and I had to have a um, a what a procedure like a a, a a scan a cat scan. I had to have an MRI where they stick you into those metal tubes. Oh yeah, head to toe, which is like horrifying, and it clangs and does this and that. But when I got in, um, um, they said they asked me if I wanted to hear some music. So I said, oh yeah. So I, they played. Now I'm blanking out the name. That's the last album. Oh, Black Star. Um, yeah, Black Star. Okay. So they played Black Star, and I hadn't heard it. And I'm listening to it in this tin can. Oh, my that's God. McClangy. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, did no, they have any idea your really... association with him? I mean, that's the, I can't believe, I mean, the coincidence of that is pretty overwhelming. It was overwhelming. It was really intense. Because number one, it was like getting personal messages from him. The clanging, were, but most music would have been destroyed by the clanging. Not that, <laughs> it just fit right in. It was incredible. And the music was, it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe he made this album like two weeks before he died or whatever. It was just fantastic. And it really, you know, it really gave me a, a, a deeper, fuller appreciation for him. And his work, it was absolutely incredible. So I thought that was also, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't listened to that much of what he did um, um, in the 80s or 90s, really. So I kind of lost track with, of him in the late 70s. And again, for me, you know, it was, um, this was a friendship that blossomed into something else that I'd never expected. So it wasn't like um I was that smitten with the idea of David Bowie. He was just somebody I happened to work with for a few years. Um, I don't know if that, that sounds about making myself <laughs> clear, but I worked with a lot of talented people. You know, they just didn't become as famous as he did. I mean, you rapidly ascended the ranks of main man to, I, I believe, president. I mean, how, how did that happen? How did you become, you know, the, the, the head of the American division of main man seemingly <laughs> overnight? Like, well, it wasn't exactly overnight. Right, right, right. A couple of months, I don't know. Because I was like to tight with him and Tony. You know, Tony and I got along really, really well. <clears throat> Once he started coming to, he would come to New York. After that signing of RCA Records, when RCA Records, Tony would come to New York every couple of weeks to like rev the record company up. And he would always call me. I would always get together with him. Then I started just doing like basically errands for him. But, you know, we, again, we, we, um, we we turn all this stuff into like legend and everything's iconic. And it's just I was just doing errands for him, and they were just doing the best. That, you know, it wasn't it wasn't nobody was looking at it under a micro, micro microscope and saying, "Oh my God, this is just incredible." It was me passing out records, and it was doing whatever. He didn't know anybody else in New York. Neither did David. <laughs> you were the friend in New York. You were that guy. I was the friend in New York, and. And we got, and you know, Main Man was a family. We all loved each other. Uh, I only brought in my best friends, Lee. And, well, they weren't even my best friends at the time. We became best friends, Lee and Cherry, because they were more involved in the rock scene than I was. And I thought that they would, like, you know, be able to contribute more, which they did. Um, Lee was phenomenal. We sent Lee out as the advanced man. And if you know anything about Lee Black Childers, he was, like, the most charismatic charming person in the world bleached blonde hair and black eyeliner and and he just walks proudly through the world with his camera taking pictures of everyone and making everyone feel like a million bucks that was lee 
So for him to walk into Cleveland, he made friends immediately of everybody in the town, <laughs> paving the way for us to get there. And Cherry, none of us had ever been inside an office. Cherry had been a producer in advertising. She knew it would have been an office. And she wasn't working it. She was kind of at a down period in her life. So we, I, we just hired Cherry to answer the phones for a few days. And she immediately took over and started organizing everything because she was the only one that knew how. <laughs> and she was brilliant. Tony became totally dependent on her. She put the whole office together. She was absolutely fantastic. And then when she got bored with that, she became the press lady. And that she had never done press, and she was brilliant at press. She created a press list of like 5,000 contacts. We sent out um, uh, the main man newsletters, became sort of legendary. That was all cherry vanilla. Um, and then when we decided to go into make our own t make TV commercials, who produced them? Cherry Vanilla, because again, she had worked in advertising. Um, now, Cherry, uh, Cherry's one of my dearest friends. I love her. And she's always stressed certain things about herself, like she was a groupie, she was this, she was that. Cherry's a really smart woman <laughs> and really talented in a lot, a lot of things that she's always played down. Um, she's played up the certain things and played down the rest of it. And she's a very capable, resourceful person. And a lot of maintenance success was due to Cherry Vanilla. All of you were doing so much. I'm thinking of you. I mean, not only you, the, you know, American president of the American division of Main Man, you're the tour manager for the Ziggy Stardust tour on top of all that. Like, I can't imagine when you slept. Well, what do you, being president, I mean, I wasn't exactly writing the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair. I mean, that was like, you know, I signed some papers now and then. I was the tour manager is what I was. Yes, I was the tour manager. You know, that's that was really my job. And, you, and, and I'll tell you how I got how I became the tour manager. Um, I went to England with Tony just before they came to the United States to do Ziggy Stardust. And it was David was doing the Rainbow, which was a famous gig, the, the Rainbow Theater in London. Then we went we we went to Manchester. We went to some other cities in northern England. We get to the first town. I don't remember what it was, but it was. We got there at night. We go into this hotel, and everybody kind of sits around in the lobby. And it's like nothing's happening. <laughs> We're just sitting there, and I'm like, I want to. I'm tired. I want to get to my room, but nobody's saying, "Oh, Tony, your room's over there," or uh, "Here's your key." So finally, I went up to the desk and signed everyone in, got the keys, made a room, you know, passed them out, wrote down what room people were in. So that's a room manifest. I didn't know it was called a room manifest. Because I wanted to get to my room, but that's what a road manager does. <laughs> so you were tired, and suddenly you woke up a road manager. Exactly. I mean, it was really that simple. Nobody else was taking the initiative. Being the only American, uh. you know, we, we do have a bit more energy. No offense to English people, but um, yeah, exactly. So that's how I evolved into, into the road manager. Then, uh, and I've told this. Uh, Forgive me if I'm boring you because you've probably heard it before. We're, we're in, now we're getting ready to do the U.S. tour. And w for the first week or two, we were on a bus, which was 
horrible, but that's another story. So the bus is sitting in front of the Plaza Hotel. So I said to Tony, Tony, because he's saying I'm the road manager. I'm saying, well, Tony, what does the road manager do? He said, oh, Z, just make sure they find Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) Point the bus towards Cleveland and you're good. (laughs) Yeah. And that was, I mean, okay, I can find Cleveland. And off we went to Cleveland. Was it, I mean, were things, did did it run smoothly or was it, was it really, I I can only imagine the number of moving parts going on with this because this was not a small entourage, right? This was some 30 something people, right? 30 plus, 30 plus. Well, the sound was done by uh, uh, a company called Ground Control uh, in ode to one of David's songs. But anyway, um, it's Space Oddity, but by a guy, a guy named Robin Mayhew, who um, they had been doing the sound in England. So they were pretty tight. They knew what they were doing. And we had rented some equipment from a company in Pennsylvania called Clara Brothers. And we didn't know like anything about lighting or who to get. So we called, Cherry called, um, now I'm blanking out on his name. He was like a famous lighting designer in New York. Not Joshua. Joshua oh, Bob C? Well, Bob C had just gotten out of NYU and he worked for this guy that was the lighting, the lighting guru. And Bob C like worked at the Fillmore. He lived upstairs from the Fillmore. Anyway, yes, so we didn't get the big guy, but they said, well, call, call this guy, Bob C. Bob C was 24 years old, kind of a big hippie. Look, he looked like a, a, a like a Hell's Angel, like a motorcycle guy. <laughs> and Bob C was fantastic. He was so on top of things. So he put a little crude. I mean, he put it together like immediately. So Bob C did the lighting, but Bob C was like a really one of those guys, you know, that you can depend on. Uh, and if something goes wrong, you can depend on Bob C to find a solution. And Bob C became a very, very successful lighting guy. C Factor was his company. He ended up owning a city block in Long Island City in New York. I guess he ended up doing huge shows all over the world. But anyway, so we had Bob C. And then um, the thing was, we never had any money. So we're on the road with no money. (laughs) 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 I mean, no money. (laughs) Um, um, But Tony talked RCA, RCA corporate into letting us book the hotels and whatever transportation we needed through their in-house travel agency, which we did plus, 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 plus. So because we were going, I mean, we were supposed to check out of the whatever hotel in Cleveland and pay the bill. Well, we didn't pay any bills because we didn't have any money. We just put everything off onto RCA. And we got away with it. They said, oh, okay. And they billed RCA. RCA didn't really agree to paying for anything. They were just supposed to be doing the bookings. But by the time, you know, all the dots got connected, um, we had charged up about $400,000. And we only earned 100000 in the whole three months. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little... Um, 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 spotty i suppose you might say one, one time we were in uh, we were in florida we were in miami actually hollandale which is slightly north of miami and 
we had, I think I had like $30 for the whole 30 people. <laughs> so Lee and I, so the idea was the office was supposed to wire me some money the next day. I was supposed to go to Fort Lauderdale, or not Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, Hollywood to pick it up. And um, so Lee and I decided, well, let's go. Well, we'll go out tonight <laughs> with the $30. <laughs> and the next day, I'll go pick up the money and we'll be fine. So Lee and I did go out and we spent about over $20. We didn't spend the 30 because I, I saved enough to take a cab from this hotel to, to, uh, to Hollywood, Florida, which was like five or six dollars anyway. So we did that. The next day, I got I got a cab. I went to the bank in uh, Hollywood. First of all, I got there at like two fifteen, thinking the bank closed at three. It actually closed at two. Oh! But being an aggressive New Yorker, I would not <laughs> take no for an answer. <laughs> and they let me in, but the money wasn't there. It hadn't arrived. So now I'm stint. No, I must have had ten dollars because I I still had a few couple dollars in my pocket. So now I'm standing there in Hollywood. I have to get back to Hollandale. I'm like, oh, Jesus. So I thought, well, <clears throat> I'll get a cab. I'll just go as far as it takes me. And when it runs out, when, when the meter runs out, I'll just say, stop, let me out here. So that's what I did. And I, so I'm like in a little, I don't know, jeans and a shirt, whatever. I'm, I'm dressed. And I have a briefcase with me. And um, it gets... It gets to a place. Actually, I knew where we were. We were at Dania Beach because Lee and I had gone there the day before. We had walked there from our hotel. It was like, it was like a good seven-mile walk. But Dania Beach was the gay beach. So I said, oh, let me out here. And so I paid whatever uh, whatever money I had left. Now I'm penniless on Dania Beach, thinking, oh, I'll, find, I'll meet some gay guy. get ask him to give me a ride back to Hollandale or I'll hitchhike or whatever. So I... Um, I go to the beach, but there's nobody on the beach, which I thought, that's weird. There's nobody on the beach. And I'm walking down the beach and walking. And the more I walk, the sicker I'm getting, like, sick and I'm choking. Because it was something called Red Tide, which I had never heard of. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know from Red Tide. And you got to realize, I'm all dressed. I'm carrying my shoes. Uh, with my briefcase on this beach. So then I thought, well, let me get to the highway and, and I'll hitchhike. But, you know, in Florida, there's all those intercoastals. I had to, I, there's a river between me and the road now. So I, I strip off all my clothes, fold them up, put them on my briefcase, put my briefcase on my head and wade across this river into this sort of like jungle. <laughs> in order to get to the road so I can hitchhike to get back to Hollandale. And uh, and I did. And I got there, and I dried off, and I put my clothes back on. And I got to the road, and the car stopped immediately. And some young guy picked me up and brought me to Hollandale. But that's the kind of adventures we would often have on the Ziggy Stardust tour. It was a little haphazard, yes. I was going to say, I mean, just charging a lot of food to room service because, I mean, how are you going to get food with no cash? Food, yeah, no, room service. We, we charged everything to room service. In Beverly Hills, we stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. You could buy anything at the Beverly Hills Hotel. They had a drugstore. They had, you know, you could rent car. Anything you wanted, you could rent at the uh, buy at the Beverly Hills Hotel. 
on room service, and we did. I mean, just the personalities on the tour. I mean, was it easy to? Was everybody relatively laid back? I mean, were there any? You know, how was David? No, not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you know, you think of these tours, and you think of David Bowie, and you think, oh, so glamorous, and so this, and so that. That was not the reality. What the reality was, a bunch of boys from Northern England. The band was off of Northern England. They had never been anywhere. Not only that, we had these bodyguards all from Hull. Stuart George. Well, Tony Frost wasn't. But anyway, they were very, like, Stuart could be a real pain in the ass and a real thug. And so could the other ones. And they, like, we were on this bus. They they started drinking at 8 o'clock in the morning and rocking for just. I mean, it was not a sophisticated group. Let me put it that way. And and it was because it was a, these boys had never been anywhere. So you're not traveling in this glamorous cavalcade. You're traveling with a bunch of like <laughs> hooligans from Northern England. <laughs> and um, but it, I mean, a lot of them were also sweet. The boy, the band was very sweet. Woody and Trevor, Mick. You couldn't find a nicer guy than Mick Ronson. Um, but it wasn't what you think. It wasn't what you would want to project it to be. It wasn't that at all. I heard a story. I don't know if it's true that that David called you one morning and said, "I, I don't know where I am. I think I'm in a house in the woods somewhere." Uh, and it fell to you to sort of track him down. That is true. And I kind of I must have written about it in my book because I, I kind of don't remember it that well. But yeah, it was in, we were in Seattle, and he had gone home with some girl. And he it, and we were. Uh, it, well, I was freaking out because I couldn't find him. Yeah. And then he did call me. Yes. And I, I, I think I said, you just get into a cab and I'll, I'll be waiting downstairs to pay for it. But uh, yeah, that was a little because we treated him. Yeah. You know, and this is on us, not on him. Or maybe it was a little on him. The minute he started playing the Ziggy character, to us, he was Ziggy. David Bowie disappeared and Ziggy, Ziggy was who? <laughs> was in the room, not David. And we treated him with kind of kid gloves and very, we made him very precious and very, you know, he had to be taken care of every step of the way. And that really wasn't his demand, I don't think, because some of it might have been a little bit, but we, we made him, um, we kind of, there was a distance. He, he was always in this very special place. Part of it was, you know, RCA's big act was Elvis. And I sat with the guy from RCA who had always been like the Elvis guy. He'd always been on the road with, with Elvis. And and he said something very interesting to me early on. He said, she said that Elvis always had to be taken care of because without Elvis, you know, there were like 50 people on the road, whatever. But without Elvis, they would all be out of a job. So it was like, you know, you were there for Elvis. And I took that to heart. Like we were there. There were thirty something of us, but without David Bowie, we wouldn't be there. We were there for David Bowie, so we uh, we treated him. Or I certainly treated him with kid gloves. He was no longer my friend at that point. He was, you know, the alien rock star, basically. <laughs> Why did the, uh, the the famous uh, Hammersmith Odeon show in in seventy three, where the, the the retirement concert, so called retirement concert? Why did that occur? Was it financially motivated, creatively motivated, all the above? What the retirement? Yeah. Well, a few reasons. Um, 
it was financial. But but first of all, you know, we've been on the road. He had been on the road for a year and a half. I mean, he did need a little bit of a break. <laughs> we all did. Um, that was a year and a half solid touring. But the other thing that happened was the publishing. Uh, DeFries was in a dispute with the publishing company. And he wanted to get David off of that publishing company. And and uh, so he didn't want to deliver any more. He did not want to deliver any new material. And if you notice, the next album was pinups, which mm. was all covers. So that was part of it. Um, the other part of it was when we had been in L.A., you know, the spiders got, well, Mike Garson was a Scientologist. He was the piano player. And he got the boys a little bit involved in Scientology. And, and the whole thing of money came up because, because all of this had been done on a shoestring for the whole year. Even though the money had begun to come in a little bit, still nobody was being paid. I mean, we were being paid very small amounts, like subsistence wages, including the band. So the band's uh, media expenses might be paid. Everything was paid, but they didn't get a salary. And Mike Garson did get a salary. And when it came out, like, well, he was making $800 a week, and they're making seventy-five. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I was like, what? So that, cre- that began to erode the relationship between the band and David and Main Man. Uh, they were demanding money. And there, w- there really wasn't any money. So, um, and David took that, you know, David also had a history of leaving bands. You know, he wasn't, this was not the Beatles. This is like his support band. So I think he took a lot of that as a betrayal. And so he was like done with the band once that started, basically. Plus, I think creatively, you know, he didn't want to be stuck to Ziggy Stardust for the rest of his life. So he he needed to recharge and move on. Um, So all of those things had a play um he did they didn't know this that nobody knew what it meant that he was retiring basically he was retiring ziggy stardust wasn't retiring david bowie um um but the band was being retired and they didn't know that so they found that out on the stage that wasn't so nice but maybe that was like getting back at them for their betrayal whatever um yeah so and that that was the in some ways the beginning of the end because it was kind of like at that moment everyone did stop and you could relax to a certain point david could relax to a certain point defreeze could relax to a certain i mean to a, they could like stand back and kind of evaluate what they had been doing what they had been working so hard towards for the last two or three years because a lot of it had been accomplished. At that point, David was responsible for 4% of all record sales in the UK. He still didn't have any success in the United States except for public, but for publicity and, and press. I mean, he didn't have rec- big record sales in the United States. He didn't have a number one single or anything like that. But he did in England. So all his life, he had been working towards becoming a pop star. That summer, he was a pop star. And for, for the next few months, he was living in London like a pop star. And Tony DeFries, who wanted to be this entrepreneur and impresario and had been working all his life towards that, could sit back and get his Park Avenue office and rent a big house in Greenwich and act like the mogul that he wanted to be. So they had both kind of accomplished their goals. And that next period of like six months or so before David came 
to the United States to prepare for the Diamond Dogs tour. Um, it was kind of all about that, and it was kind of the beginning of the end of Mean Man. My last question, is there an image or a scene to you that really sums up that period of your life with David? Is there like one snapshot or vignette that you treasure above all others? Wow, that's an interesting question. It's funny because, I, I mean, I'm going to just tell you the first thing that comes to my mind, and I don't know why because it's certainly not dramatic. We were on the road somewhere, and this was during the, the uh, Young Americans tour. And we were in David's suite. We were watching television. We were watching California Split, which was <laughs> a movie directed by Robert Altman. It's just a nice moment that we had because he was, you know, it was he was he was in the midst of trying to write a screenplay, and he was headed towards the movies. And we both were just in total awe of Robert Altman. But it was kind of because I guess by that time. I mean, the whole thing, the whole experience for me was not one. I was not ambitious. I did not want to be in the music business. I got involved in all of this because these were my friends and we all loved each other. We were all very close, including Lee and Cherry, Angie and and and, and uh, David, certainly. But, you know, you get caught up in the work and that, that kind of it kind of turns into something else. But that was, I guess, one moment where I felt a kinship with him again. Uh, and it wasn't based on, you know, David Bowie superstar or Tony Zanetta, president of Main Man. It was just two people watching this movie. That was nice. And I don't know why it seems significant at this moment, but I guess it was. Because you're friends. It was getting back yeah. to what you originally were. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.